This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. You're listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. Komikaela Naimen Toko Ingoa. My name is Michaela Naiman and I'm your host. Welcome! This show focuses on the arts and creativity in Taranaki and beyond. We aim to cover the diversity of arts from painting, literature, songwriting, theatre, pottery, poetry, sculpture and how the creative arts contribute to our community, as well as our own sense of purpose and well-being. The Sugarloafing Artscast is generously supported by the Govet Brewster Art Gallery and Len Lai Centre. Stay tuned to find out more. On this windy summer's day, I'm with Elizabeth Smither, who is an award-winning poet, novelist and short story writer. And her numerous collections of poetry and short stories have been published uh, here and uh, in other places in the world. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Michaela. (laughs) (laughs) So lovely to finally get to talk to you. I'm just wondering where we should start because you've done so much. So let's start with poetry. Okay. Uh, You are an award-winning poet and your poetry style is often described as idiosyncratic, whatever that means. And it moves beyond the kind of self-referential into areas of legendary characters, Catholicism and language itself. But you're also very witty and uh, you have such great observational skills. So can you tell me a bit about your poetry? What, when did you start writing and why? I think I started writing poetry in the 1970s. Um, in 1975 there were, there were a, a, quite a number of collections, I'm not quite sure how many, perhaps six published by women writers. That was to do with National Women's Year or something like that. So I I would have started in the 70s, I think. And like a lot of women, um, perhaps, you know, like Patricia Grace, who could write while she was stirring a pot with one hand, uh, I wrote poetry because it was shorter and you could could write a poem in a shorter amount of time. I'm a quick writer. I write very fast actually and actually I notice now I'm writing faster than ever (laughs) trying to get everything down and sometimes I even find it hard to read my writing which is quite quite silly in a way. So you do write in longhand? I do. I write in longhand in blank exercise books. I can't be writing on lines somehow and I write very quickly. I, I just want to do everything at once in a poem. I want to see, I want to think, I want to feel, I want to be intellectual to a degree. I, I might find a simile or something, but I like to sort of go quickly. Um, it's almost like that thing of pressing your face to something quickly, you know, getting an impression of something. Because I think you're always aware with art that it has a sort of decay built into it, a fading, you know, unless you put the maximum amount of vitality into it, it's going to fade. Mm. It's rather like that painter, Bratby, who years ago used to do paintings as if the oil paint had been squeezed on like toothpaste. And then, of course, he obviously didn't understand enough about oil paints because then it got faded and you know, it didn't really work. But wanting to do something, so that idea of the word quick, meaning alive, 
the opposite of dead, quick in the dead, you know, you want to be quick if you can. But I, that, I haven't got anything against poets who write slowly. <laughs> Nothing against writing slowly. Um, in fact, I think there's an American survey was done and they worked out that about 50% of the poets wrote quickly and the other 50% wrote slowly, you know. So do you stay with what you have like once it's on the page or are you one of these who go back and rework it numerous times? Not numerous times but I do edit a lot more than I used to and very often if I'm writing quickly and I don't stop for the right word or put a question mark under that knowing I've got to go back and find the meaning or the exactness of the word. That's smart, but, but you don't stop the flow. I don't stop the flow, no. And then I go back and look at it. And when I come to type them up, the poems up, I usually try to write about five in a session. I often just scratch through a lot of them. I just put write reject in the corner and go. And that's because the poem hasn't quite worked and you might go back to it again and do it later, you know. Um, do you find that you can have um, an ending or a stanza that you really like, but it doesn't, the rest of the poem is nothing, but that part you really like? Yeah, that can happen. Um, I don't think if I had a stanza I really liked and had another five stanzas around it, I don't think that would save the poem for me. But that's more the work of a careful poet, I think, not, not a careless <laughs> one, you know. Um, but you are the award-winning poet. <laughs> so uh, you have all these um, terrific uh, close observations of behaviour of both uh, people and animals, mm. often in your poems. And um, it seems like you have fun when you write. Yes, I do in a way. I do like looking at things. I, when I look, I suppose it's that Colette thing, you know, she said regard. That was the last word she said. Look at, I think she was looking at a book of butterflies photos of butterflies. You have to look and you have to look hard. She was a writer that drew conclusions about relationships and nature that were not obvious. You know, that she saw things that didn't add up according to the current view of them, but she had that way of looking and looking for details and things really. And Colette was very courageous too. Yes. Ahead yeah. of her times. Absolutely. Mm. Yes, absolutely. So what makes for a good poem? You have been a uh, you know, a judge, if uh, there is such a thing as judging poetry, but you know, you have been um, enlisted and commissioned to look at other people's poetry and decide what's good and what's not. So yes. what makes for a good poem? Well, I think the best definition of what's good is what um, Alan Kuhner said to me once, that if a poem's good, you can poke it with a stick and it's alive. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true. It's got to be alive. It's, you know, it can be wonderfully intellectual or something or full of wonderful images, but it's not actually alive. It's not really a good poem. Mm -hmm. And I've always remembered that because when I lived in Carlstead's house in 1984 for part of the year, I used to put poems in Alan's letterbox and he'd do the same for me. And, you know, he'd say, yeah, it's alive. <laughs> Something like that. Mm. What a wonderful relationship. Yeah, who are some of your favourite poets? varies enormously, you know, whoever I'm reading, it might be Louise Glick or, you know, I've just got so many poets I love that I, I couldn't really... Um, For different occasions or...? Well, I, me I remember being in Britain at a little festival in King's Lynn and at the end of it we, we sat in a half circle on chairs facing the audience and they asked us to choose a poem, a poet, 
that we really loved. So I chose Jane Kenyon, but I couldn't get anyone there to agree with me. <laughs> however, however enthusiastic I got about Jane Kenyon, when they voted, they all voted for Philip Larkin, and all the Irish poets just rolled their eyes and <laughs> sighed. So um, it's very hard to convince people of who is the, ve the best poet, but there's so many good poets to discover. Yeah, and, and your views change all the time, of course. Yeah, but yeah. you also a really ferocious reader, so you mm. read the latest poetry as well as the classics and, you know, you read very widely. Mm. Well, there's nothing that starts you writing more than sitting down to a writing session surrounded by poems, books of poetry, and you read in them for a while and that stimulates you, you know, you sort of gives you a kick in the teeth and you thought, and then you start and you might even find a subject in there that you can use. Mm. but. You can't write poetry without reading poetry, I don't think. Maybe there's the odd person that does. John Clare perhaps didn't read, I don't know. John Clare might have read a great deal of poetry. But in the end, you've got to be yourself too, as well as being influenced by other great poets. You've got to find yourself really. But I think in poetry, you find your voice by losing it in what you're writing about. You know, that's, that's how you find your voice. You don't start off thinking, I have got a unique voice. That's nonsense. But if you look hard, as Colette did at something, or Keats talking about the leaves on a, on a tree, you absorb yourself into that, and then the voice is individual. But you haven't noticed it. You're not striving for it. But it actually becomes individual over time. And you might need to avoid leaves and daffodils if you want to be <laughs> unique. <laughs> Yes. But um, you published your first collection, Here Comes the Clouds, in your mid-30s. And mm. already then, these reviews talk very much about your voice already then. Yes, I, I mean, I couldn't see it myself. But like, yes, well, did, Elizabeth Caffin did see the distinct voice and so forth. But um, it's funny to look back on your early work, really, <laughs> and try and judge it. And there's um, some things you like and some things you think that's not so good but every at every stage in your life you you find new things but you lose some earlier things you know you can never quite get back the carelessness and confidence of your very early work yeah that it's um, kind of um, a freedom and liberating which I think uh, most emerging writers don't realize until mm. it's too mm. late no one knows what you're supposed to sound like yet so no, just no, go for it. That's right. And perhaps a voice, if you have one, will develop over a whole body of work and mm. become clear. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And distinct. All right, we are going to take a short music break. And I thought, because this is a nod to your collection, listening to the Everly Brothers and other stories. So all I have to do is dream with the Everly Brothers. Dream. So why? 
Welcome back to Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. You're listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast and I'm your host Michaela Nyman. We are grateful for the sponsorship by Govet Brewster Art Gallery and Land Life Center for this show. And on this very windy, hot summer's day, I am with Elizabeth Smither, who's an award-winning poet, novelist and short story writer. Elizabeth has so many strings on her bow, but maybe we could listen to one of your poems now that we have talked about other people's poetry. This poem is called Reading. I see myself in the pose of a book. Its pose is poetry or prose. Something in my still arms, holding the pages apart, the ribbon placed. It is such a book with grace, like a tongue before it speaks. I see behind my pose another and another, far back, my shoulders smaller, and my spine is the spine of a child, softly curved, and my tongue is silent, but the words come to me between my arms. Oh. Is that a new one? Newish. I can see the spine, the curved, and the smallness of the person. Yeah, very beautiful. So well, you, you know, you see your grandchildren reading, don't you, and your children reading, and, and it's a long-term thing, isn't it? It goes on all your life, really. And, uh, and they feature in quite a few of your poems, and I guess one of them also has a collection. Oh, the Ruby Ruby, poem. yeah. Ruby Dooby Doo. Yes. Yes, it's <laughs> strange to look back on a collection like that. I adored your collection, Night Horse, also for its gorgeous cover. It has really stunning cover and um, yeah I was so glad to see that it um, got the Occam's New Zealand Book Awards in 2018. You keep putting out your collections and your books to the world and uh, you are very prolific. Is it important also to get that recognition or you know do you feel like you have to continue you can't stop no, no, don't, I don't think of it like that. I just write because I like writing. You know, sometimes when I'm scratching away at something, I just think this is what I really love doing, even though it's not going very well. <laughs> it, it's sort of something that gives me pleasure, really. And if I'm, if I'm not writing, after a while I become a bit grumpy, <laughs> a bit irritable, and I think, what's wrong with you is you should don't go and do some writing. And then you feel that equilibrium is restored again to you. But the writing is hard work, as we know. It's not just writing oh, yes. the words. Then, then you come oh, to the no. editing stage and then you come to trying to find a home for your writing mm. and all the edits that follow once you have a publisher. So it's a long journey. Particularly for a novel, because with a novel you have editing, you have proofing, all those things, you know, it's, it's complex and it's, it's long, it's long. And also the novel you wrote was probably written the year before or even two years before and then you're back into it, going through it sentence by sentence, changing things, you know, dealing with a wonderful editor or something, you know, it's a complex process. Poetry is actually 
rather um, removed from that. People don't normally edit your poetry. They don't dare to. They don't, <laughs> they don't, they don't really know what you're trying to say. <laughs> they might say, I can't understand this line. What did you, and then you defend yourself. But it's not the same with prose. No, prose has got a lot more hatchet men around it. So you have a lot of stamina actually to see it through because, um, yeah, you know, you are in for the long haul, but you also have several pieces on the go at any one time mm. because, of course, it might look linear to someone on the outside. But as we all know, you need to keep putting them out there because you don't know what is going to be picked up and when. No, no, that's right. And particularly now, because there are so many people submitting work that sometimes it takes about a year to get a reply for something. And it's Even for a poet laureate? Well, it's just so many, so many people. I think I read that Poetry Chicago gets 100,000 poems a year, and they're probably working with a very tiny staff and everything. You know, it's, they're inundated with stuff, really. So you must stand out in some way. And, uh, yeah, as well as receiving numerous awards, you were named the 2002 Tamata Poet Laureate. For those who don't know, what does a Poet Laureate actually do? Well, it's a, it, I think it's an English tradition, really. Um, it is different in England. The Poet Laureate there has, it used to be a term for life, but now I think it's about 10 years. But in America, the Poet Laureate has a term of one or two years, so it's a different... A better arrangement, I think, really, because it's very, very hard to be a poet laureate. Though this doesn't apply in New Zealand, we're not required to write poems about the Prime Minister or, or things like that. But in Britain, it's expected the poet laureate will write poems about the Queen and the royal family and, and things like this. And it's very hard to, to do that. And I think and Andrew Motion said that, you know, it sort of put him off writing poems for ages because he'd write something light about Prince William and then all these people would attack him furiously. And, you know, it's very hard to write those occasional poems. That are... Yeah, I remember listening to Selina Tusitala Marsh uh, talking about when she was the Commonwealth poet and she did uh, have to write something to the Queen and she was uh, really not knowing where and how to start until it became, I think, there's a U and an I in unity. That's right, yeah. yes. But uh, it was really strict, no politics, no this or that, no offensive language, no, you know, Yes, mm. and there was a lovely story, I think, that I read that she read the poem to a guardsman, I think, didn't she? And of course he had to stand very still and couldn't sort of move. <laughs> but I think, it, did he bow his head or something? He gave some indication he liked it. <laughs> this is testing it out. <laughs> but you are not only an acclaimed writer of poetry, you are actually a fabulous short story writer and novelist as well. You don't see poetry and prose being in kind of competition with each other or in, you know, exclusive lanes in the writing world? No, not, not at all really. They're like different species of animals in a way. Um, and they require different techniques, I think. A novel is a really long haul thing to do. And I think by the end of writing a novel, you are probably slightly deranged. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so it's so you're sort of dragging it out of yourself, you know, you don't know where you're going, you don't know what the characters are going to do, unless you've got it all plotted out, of course, which I never have any idea of doing. But it's exhausting. It's a big, exhausting thing to do, to write about 100,000 words in a regular timetable and, and sort of just going on. It's like um, 
someone said something, it's like falling over from a ship in mid-ocean and it takes quite a while for anyone to notice you're missing and then they've got to turn the ship around which is quite quite complex and so you've got to just it's not a case of swimming beautifully or doing your butterfly stroke it's a case of somehow staying afloat <laughs> and that's whereas a, a poem is more like a sprint across the, the bars and the short story is more like doing say 10 lengths or something. <laughs> And, and this is from Elizabeth Smith, who actually came out with the novel Loving Sylvie in 2019. And then a short story collection, your most recent, The Piano Girls in 2021. And before that was the Night Horse uh, mm. poetry collection that won the Occam's Book Award. So it's not like you are exactly sitting still and not doing your laps. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps I am, but perhaps because I write fast, I can get quite a bit done, you know, mm. so... Mm. Yes. So how do you approach the short story? Do you have a collection in mind when you start? Sometimes I have an idea for a story. I, ha I had one or two ideas recently and I just write it down on a piece of paper and think this maybe this will make a story. Sometimes it's something that's happened in your life or someone else's life that strikes you as a short story. Yes, I've just written a story fairly recently about my experience of going to a convent and learning music from a ferocious, <laughs> wonderful mother superior, you know, and it was such an interesting experience. And It sounds like an amazing experience, <laughs> but you've written quite a lot about music before. I love yes. the, the one in The Piano Girls. Yes, I love writing about music. Yeah. Yes, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by musicians like Mozart. He always seems to me to be in a little spaceship traveling through the galaxies. He's, he's so sure of where to go and what to do. I've just read a great big biography of, of Mozart and it's wonderful, to, you know, his life, is the way he worked so hard all the time, you know, it was absolutely wonderful. Right, we will take a um, short music break and then I hope we can hear a bit from your, one of your short stories. And this is uh, Rene Milner and Juliette MacLean. Juliet being one of your collaborators because you have lots of them too and this is um, Comfortable Sorrow If you take me away from comfortable sorrow better that I sit behind watching the lines on the road between me and not me not easy to find if you paint me over with a brush of your lips to my cheek And if I swear love, remind me of jackals and snakes on the road And you be honest to God Just a kiss Dumb mouth to a flame And marks become lines Powder dusted perfection I hide 
Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. You are listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast and I'm your host Michaela Nyman. And we are grateful for the sponsorship by Govet Brewster Art Gallery and Landlice Center for this show. And I'm with Elizabeth Smither, who's an award-winning poet, novelist and short story writer here in Taranaki on a very windy summer's day. So there might be a bit of creaking and yeah, branches falling down on us. And we are talking about poetry and prose, and I've just asked Elizabeth if she wouldn't mind um, reading us uh, a piece of prose this time. Uh, it's, the story is called The Music Lesson. Millie Bird's first music lesson was almost her last. Her father had been assured that nuns were the best teachers, and now she stood at the door of St Mary of the Angels Convent with her music satchel with gold initials in her hand, waiting to be conducted into the presence of the Mother Superior. It doesn't matter that you are a Protestant, her father had told her. He thought the question would not arise, and if it did, a blank look might be the best response. Millie herself felt she had enough to cope with, climbing two flights of stairs behind a girl with a cardigan over her head. Outside Mother's door, she took a deep breath and knocked gently. There was silence, then a deep voice called, Enter. There would be other music exams and other teachers in future, but to cross the dark, polished floor to the grand piano was as fearsome as walking on a lake. Her footsteps clattered and she thought she might fall. From the piano stool rose Mother Anastasia, face enclosed like a keyhole with heavy beads at her waist. Millie looked into a pair of dark eyes and an expression she could not fathom. On top of the piano sat a metronome like a Dalek. I don't think I can go back, Millie said to her father that evening. It wasn't anything that had been said, but what was expected. Every minute was to be profitably used. Practice and theory would go hand in hand. There would be no excuses. Millie had imagined her baby brother's teasing and that she could sometimes walk him up and down to give her mother a break. Might excuse a faltering scale in C major. 
before her hour was up. She had her practice written down in a little notebook and a piece of music, Clear de Lune by Debussy, cowered in her music case. And this comes later. Came the day when the lessons with Mother Anastasia ceased. Shyly, Millie produced her autograph book with different coloured pages, pale blue and green, daffodil yellow, and offered it to her. She had the book ribbon ready on a pale mauve page. The messages up to this point hovered between the overblown, decorated with love hearts and wise old owls. Mother Anastasia took the book and regarded Millie seriously for a moment. I don't usually sign autograph books for Protestants, she said. It was a matter of doctrine, not censure, and Millie, who had grown up considerably, was not offended. She felt it would be the gem of her collection. Stepping to a side table and seating herself, Mother had written her last instruction, the secret of success, work, 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 sister. Thank you, Millie said, taking it back without reading it. Something private had passed between them. At home, she put the autograph book in her handkerchief drawer. She decided there would be no more autographs. If anyone asked, she would say the book was lost. Yet those harsh, harsh and bitter, yet somehow hopeful words would stay with her forever. And this is your latest. Oh, I sure hope that uh, it took longer than 20 minutes to write it. <laughs> <laughs> it wonderful. would have been quite, written quite slowly, but just a little bit at a time. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. that uh, Mother Superior, like a keyhole and the, the metronome like a Dalek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she was, a, she was an amazing teacher. I mean, within a few weeks, we were playing at the radio station, <laughs> you know, playing just little pieces. She was a formidable teacher. You know, it, there was no question of not succeeding. <laughs> so how do you approach it when you write about real people that have existed? Yes, well, I think you... Well, Mother Mildred, of course, Mother Mildred, her name was, is no longer here. But um, you often disguise them a little. But I have a rule that I, if I write about other people, I usually write about them favourably. And if there's an idiot in the story, it's usually me, <laughs> disguised. <laughs> so, yes, I like, I like to be compassionate with characters. You, know, you to, are compassionate with you know, characters. To, to sort of see them in the round, really, see something in them that is, that is interesting, that... that has some good points in them. You know, I don't think I've ever done a really bad character. <laughs> Perhaps. No, but there are some uh, idiots or uh, people yeah. who deserve yes. the treatment they get. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm. I am also thinking about some of the very funny stories you have, um, like in The Piano Girl, where there's the one furious baking scene where someone <laughs> is making advances. <laughs> and the narrator and the protagonist of the story is um, coming up with all these excuses to bake to keep the advances off. <laughs> you know, it's pretty hilarious. Yes, that, that has a slight thing in truth. It was someone who, who wanted to come over and have have um, exciting conversation. And I didn't want anyone to come over that night. I was exhausted. I wanted to go to bed and read a book. So, but the baking thing was something I thought up later. You know, when you've got to bake for a school gala or something and you've got to do lots of baking. <laughs> yes. uh, how do you know when a short story is finished? Like a poem, I think it comes to it does come to an end. You often don't know what the ending will be, 
but it will come to an end. Either you're exhausted by it and can't think of where to go. It's different, of course, to a novel because a novel has chapters or breaks or things. You know, the thing about writing a novel is that Chandler thing, if you can't think what to do, introduce a character with a gun and then you'll describe the gun and something will happen, you know. But other times a novel needs quiet passages, you know, where quiet reflective passages. Mm. Um, in it. So it's like music in a way, you know, music will have a legato or a vache area and then it will be quiet and solemn or, yeah, so a big novel is, has that sort of thing in it, otherwise the reader would be absolutely worn out by it. Yeah, no, interesting. It does feel though that you've been so prolific uh, and celebrated as a poet that sometimes your prose ends up in the shadow a bit of that. Not necessarily your short stories, but the novels. And yet, you know, you put in so much care and compassion and they draw on similar territory, all three. Yeah, does that ever annoy you? Or? No, no, not at all, because something like a novel is such a hard form to do, you know, that you always feel you're still learning. And I think, I think that applies to all the things you write, really. You know, your poetry changes as you get older, you have different interests. You, you, uh, I think my poetry has become more musical as I've got older, but that perhaps wasn't there in the very early writing. Um, yeah, you're always learning, really. I don't, I don't feel any sort of regrets about it. Mm. I love that idea that it's always learning and at the same time I can imagine that some people would get frustrated and say, oh, don't you ever feel that you have mastered it? You can't master it. That's something that I've been writing an essay about at the moment. You know, and that's something that Andrew Motion said that you, I think it was Andrew Motion, you are apprentice to something in which you can never succeed. You know, you, you might write a good poem or something, but there's always a better poem, <laughs> a better poem that's, that's out there winking at you and you're trying to trying to get it, you know. And I, I got this idea when I used to do ballet and I remember being on a stage with a spotlight and I must have been about 13 or 14 or something and noticing you could never escape the spotlight, but it was always ahead of you. You could never get ahead of it. If you tried to do some uncalled for movement, it still followed you, but it was sort of saying, can you catch me? And no, you can't, because it's always going to be leading you on to the next thing. So that's the sort of image, really. And I think writers that are really worth their salt always are looking for the next thing, aren't they? Absolutely, I think so too. And, and also that is what makes it exciting for both the reader and the writer. Otherwise we would be doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, which you clearly have managed to not do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we will take a short break here and um, here's a nod um, to your Australian uh, links as well with um, Kate Seberano, Pash.
babe, turn off the phone. Welcome back to Access Radio Taranaki 104.4. You are listening to the Sugarloafing Artscast and I'm your host Michaela Nyman. And we are grateful for the sponsorship by Govette Brewster Art Gallery and Landlight Center for this podcast. And I'm here with Elizabeth Smither today who's an award-winning poet, novelist, short story writer, essayist and uh, non-fiction writer. And uh, we are talking about poetry, novels, short stories, but also happily coming in on the subject of non-fiction. So you are really a prolific writer across genres and uh, I've come across your journal box, which was your fabulous journals from your year as a resident, was it in Auckland yes, at the 19, university? Yes, 1984. Yes, yes. I wanted to write something that I could just write about when I wanted to. I didn't want to write a diary or a memoir. I wanted to just write something when the idea came to me. You know, sometimes you have an idea. It might have been walking across the campus or something or conversation at lunch in the, in the common room or just something interesting, you know. And they are interesting. Would that be the closest you've come to writing memoir? Yes, yes, I think so, yes. Mm. Of course, there, there are things that, as you said, that you draw on uh, from your life in, yes, in your yes. novels and short stories as well. And I'm thinking particularly of books like The Brother Love, Sister Love, mm -hmm. 1986, which mm. recounts a trip to England by Isabel, a New Zealand poet who visits her expatriate brother James. And you write it from multiple viewpoints. And then more recently was uh, Loving Sylvie, which also was written from multiple viewpoints and also features Isabel. So those draw on your life as well, but they are not, they are fictional. Fictional, they're not really obvious. You know, no. the, there are things that are, that are real, but the, the things that are real and the things that are fiction are so entwined that you, <laughs> That you, um, someone I think, don't know who it was, said that my, they were trying to edit something I'd written, I think, an essay, and they said it's all so tightly entangled together, it's like a bower bird's nest or something. And they were saying it was so hard to separate bits of it out. And uh, I love that image. Wound up together, yes. The bower bird's nest. Well, you could call your memoir that <laughs> <laughs> if you ever get there. <laughs> But meanwhile, if you haven't checked out the journal box, it's actually at the library and uh, yeah, very well worth a read. So you could have become an accidental academic as well if you'd continued. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> don't think so, Michaela, because when I was in my office at Auckland University, Carl Stead came in one day and he was editing a 
academic journal and he came in and tricked me. He walked around and said, I'd like you to write something for this. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. And then he walked around and he sort of muttered and carried on. It turned out when he left the room, I'd somehow agreed to do it. And when I did it, I worked quite hard on this thing about New Zealand literature. And it came back and they said, low academic generalizations or something. <laughs> so it was a total waste of time. I haven't got an academic mind at all. But uh, I published it somewhere else, I think. But you have a very good memory and, uh, of situations and people, and um, you're really good at uh, you know, relating it. So you're a good storyteller. And uh, that comes through in your nonfiction as well. It's always nice anecdotes. How do you go about this essay that you're writing now? Well, the essays I'm writing now, we, perhaps they're a wee bit like the journal box, but not quite. What I've done is take, I've only written two of them so far, and I'm taking quotes that I also have got a book of quotations that I used to keep and I've sent copies to some friends. But what I do, if I see a quotation I like, I thought I would take 10 quotations and then I'd write 10,000 words on each quotation. So the one I've written so far, and I don't know if it's any good, it's from Wittgenstein saying, if a lion could speak, we could not understand what he says. So, but instead of a lion, I've got a cat. Because <laughs> <laughs> but it's trying to work out how you relate to an animal, you know. And it's fascinating the, the way an individual animal behaves with you and how you behave with, with it, you know. It's a learning thing for both the animal and the, and the person, you know. So that, that interests me, that interface between animal and person. Mm. And it's it comes not... through in your writing. Mm. You have a very handsome cat who has chosen you here, <laughs> who's not yours. No, and he just recently he's started to jump up on my desk walk across the computer and he sits on the side now. So it's quite fascinating. That's what he wants to do. Whereas I've had other cats have done other things, you know. So they're all individual. Mm. Yes. And Loving Sylvie features this uh, small dog that is actually a key character because the dog comes with a whole estate, a house at least, and money. Yes, yes and, that's right. Uh, has to be taken care of. And of course, that's right. something happens. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, animals are very important. I mean, they play a very important part in our life, don't they? They're comforters and they're guides and they, and they also reprimand us in their own way. If they, especially cats, I think Colette felt that cats are, are sort of disgusted when we're morose <laughs> and weepy. They, they don't want anything to do with us. But when, when we're better, they come back as if to say, well done. Cat can actually look very disgusted when they look at you. Yeah, yeah. But this cat that you have now is very handsome and uh, yeah, just appeared one day and mm, clearly mm. seems to have adopted you, not the other way around. Yes, that's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to wrap this up, but what do you think you, you would have done professionally in your life had you not um, chosen to be a librarian and a writer? Oh, I know. I would have liked to have been a nurse, I think. Really? Yes, but I had an aunt who was a nurse, and my, my father and she didn't get on very well. They used to quarrel quite a bit. And when my father knew I wanted to be a nurse, he put me off being a nurse. But um, the funny thing is that when my mother was very oldly, she was about 97, I remember being visiting her at the rest home and crouching beside her. She was sitting in a wheelchair. And she said to me, she said, you are a very kind nurse. And I thought, I don't need to be a nurse. 
I've done it. <laughs> well, the health uh, profession doesn't know what they've lost out on. <laughs> oh, I don't think so, Michaela. But, but you know, I, I'm very, if I had been a nurse, I would have been very interested in all sorts of things, you know, um, that, that ability to observe. And there have been wonderful medical poets, haven't there? It's a, yeah, well, it's, you are one too. You have some wonderful medical observations in some of your poetry. Mm. So beware but it's an next interesting, time. It's an interesting, <laughs> very interesting field. I mean, William Carlos Williams, all these, all these wonderful doctors that, uh, that have turned to writing poetry as a sideline of medicine, really. Which, well, we have our own Glenn Corcoran. That's right, yeah. we do, yes. Yes, wonder, he's wonderful. We, uh, we went on a trip to Australia together. Yes, and uh, that's right, the way of looking at things. I remember him telling us a wonderful story. An elderly woman had collapsed at some performance and he, being the doctor there, he rushed up to her side and he bent over and he said, she said, do you know what's, what's wrong with me, doctor? And he bent over and he said, I haven't got a clue. Oh, that's marvellous. Well, thank you so much for your generosity and for sharing new work. That's amazing to hear. And good luck with everything you are doing this year. And you too, Michaela, when you go to Otago. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Sugarloafing Artscast on 104.4 FM. My name is Michaela Nyman and you can contact me with feedback and ideas for shows at Access Radio Taranaki or email me on community at accessradiotaranaki.com. You can check out the artists, guests and their fabulous work on our Sugarloafing Facebook page and Instagram. To listen to previous episodes of the show, go to accessradiotaranaki.com and search us up under current shows. The Sugarloafing Artscast was made possible with the support of Govet Brewster Art Gallery and the Len Lai Center. Until next week. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.